Muchísimas gracias to our choir. Talk about awe, wonder, and amazement. You guys are fantastic. You know, sometimes that feeling of thank you life is so easy to access. You just feel so open to it, bathed in it. I, that's my experience of listening to the choir this morning. Yes. And then other times we find ourselves in situations where that gratitude, that sense of aliveness, that connection and spirit feels very far away. And so our sermon begins this morning in a different place than where our choir left us off. By the looks of her pink cotton nightgown and her carefully combed hair, you wouldn't have guessed that she had been in the hospital for weeks. Someone's loving hands had been hard at work maintaining her dignity and her appearance. She breathed slowly with the help of the machine next to her. Her body appeared to be resting and utterly exhausted at the same time. We'll call her Emma. As I walked into the room, I saw Emma's husband, Jack, sitting across the room watching her. This was my first time meeting him as the staff chaplain at the hospital, which was my, minister, my ministry life prior to coming here to First Universalist in August. I shook Jack's hand and asked how he was doing. Jack seemed relieved to see a friendly face and glad for the opportunity to tell the story of his ailing wife and their life together before she got sick. Emma and Jack had spent their whole lives together. Emma grew up in Poland during the Second World War. She had to work in a hotel from a very young age to support her family. She was a survivor, a hard worker, and a beloved partner in life. And I was listening to Jack tell me this. But listening was hard because I also had this very loud and irritatingly familiar monologue running through my mind. A monologue that said, you have no idea what he's going through. You don't know what it's like to watch your spouse die. You haven't even dealt with the death of a parent. What could you possibly have to offer this man in his time of need? A treasured mentor of mine, the Reverend David Bumbaugh, once said, the work of the church is nothing less than the salvation of the world. And coming from a religious humanist like David, I understand salvation to mean the transformation of our broken, hurting world into a life-giving place where humanity lives in harmony with one another and with nature. And I wholeheartedly believe that the repair of the world is the work of the church. Yet sitting in that hospital room, a quintessential ministry moment, I got stuck feeling crushed by the weight of that mandate to fix the world's brokenness. I, 
felt really tempted to try and just make her grief come to an end by finding the right, right words, finding some kind of magic phrase. My mind went blank. I couldn't imagine how I could possibly minister to this man since I hadn't been through what he was going through. And he continued talking with me, bringing Emma and their marriage to life. They used to do everything together. They explored the world together. They became adults together. And now his days revolved around visiting her in the hospital and trying to take care of himself. He said, you know, it's just me in the house now. I have these cans of chunky chicken soup in the basement that we used to split between us, and now they're just sitting there. I've got bottles of Diet Right that I don't want to open because I can't finish a whole one myself. She doesn't drink very much these days. And there is something about these details of their life together, the commonplace discussion of groceries, that touched me and my heart dropped. It's true, I hadn't grieved the loss of a decades-long love. But I had been the one left behind, looking across the table at an empty chair, tears welling in my eyes. And I had carried the conflicted weight of anticipated loss, raging against the idea that someone who I love could possibly stop living and yet also hoping that death would take her become, because life had become torture. I have known the ache of loneliness many times over, and I could imagine what Jack was going through. I could imagine it. I touched his hand and gave it a squeeze. <clears throat> he, said it, he shed a few tears and said something like, thanks. And something shifted in the room like a knot coming undone. I imagine that most of us have found ourselves in a position like this. We're called to comfort someone in need, someone sitting right in front of us. and We have no idea what we might offer. We forget that our task is not to find a quick solution. It's not to find the magic words. But our task is to come with an open heart and to bear witness to this fellow human with an inner life as rich and nuanced and serious as ours and listen to their story and let it touch our imagination. In listening to Jack, my imagination dropped me into his experience. Imagination led to empathy, and empathy led to connection, and connection brought a small but real moment of healing to Jack. This was ministry, and it began in the imagination. The work of the church, the salvation of the world, begins with the imagination. We often associate imagination with fantasy, with what is not real. However, our imaginations actually put us in touch with what is most real and most true. 
To borrow from theologian Paul Tillich, our imaginations are double-edged because they not only open worlds, but they open our souls. And religion asks us to take imagination seriously, to take imagination seriously. Imagination is how the depths of human experience come to life for us through religious stories, through sacred scriptures, through ritual, and through the stories of our lives. Witnessing and listening to another person's experience can ignite the imagination, activate our empathy, and lead us into compassionate action. Buddhist nun Pima Chodron writes, we don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect another's heart. I set out to do this all the time, to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how my actions might affect their hearts. I set out to do it and I am consistently shocked by how hard it is especially with the people to whom I'm the most obviously connected. Forget about saving the world. I have so often set out simply to wonder how the people who are most close to me, how my family is doing, and I get ridiculously off the map every day. Maybe I start the day in a proud ministerial way with a reading and some quiet reflection <laughs> on a good day. And I'm beaming with appreciation for my husband, Jason. And yet, a few hours later, I see the mess in the kitchen and our scheduling conflicts, and I thought you meant this, but I was really meant that. And suddenly, Jason's full humanity just dwindles, it just shrivels up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just left with someone convenient to blame. <laughs> my two-year-old daughter, I would give my own life. I would bend over backwards to keep her safe and happy. But unfortunately, she gets transformed from a person to an obstacle all the time. Just a whining entity that's coming... <laughs> It's coming between me and getting things done. <laughs> my parents get reduced to voicemails lined up on my phone. <clears throat> and these are my people. What about the rest of the world? It is amazing how we can experience these moments of visceral compassion, of expansive vision, these moments of gracias a la vida. And then at the next turn, we are consumed by the impulsive, self-preserving responses of our reptilian brains. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is why I need church. <laughs> I need a place to regularly draw me out of my narcissism and the narrow, tired calls of the ego. 
I need a place to expand my perspective and call me again and again to those first steps of repairing the world. Loving my neighbor as myself. Greeting fellow humans as my sisters and brothers whose interior worlds are just as real, just as heart-wrenching, just as alive as my own. I need a place that offers my imagination yet more evidence of our unfathomable interconnection as beings all made of stardust, as cousins to feathers and mountains and comets. I am so grateful for this faith community that gathers to behold the truth unveiled again and again, however briefly, this truth that our lives and our fates are inextricably bound up in each other. And yet I must remember, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel reminds us all, the beginning of faith is not a sense of awe, wonder, and amazement. The root of religion is the question, what to do with the sense of awe, wonder, and amazement? Religion begins with the consciousness that something is asked of us. Buddhist meditation teacher Jack Kornfield tells the story of a 14-year-old boy in a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in Washington, D.C. And as I read the story in one of his books, he heard the story from a man with whom he shared a long subway ride, a man who worked in this program for juvenile offenders. <clears throat> Here's what happened. A boy had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. And as Cornfield tells the story, throughout the boy's trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. And then the youth was taken away to serve several years in the juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his killer. He had been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor that he had had. So for a time they talked, and then she left him with some money for cigarettes. And then she started step by step to visit him regularly, bringing him food and small gifts. And near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. And he was confused about his future, it was really unclear. And so she offered to help set him up with a job at her friend's company. And then she inquired where he would live. And since he had no family to return to, she offered him the temporary use of the spare room in her home. And for eight months, he lived there, he ate her food, and he worked at that job. And then one evening, she called him into the living room to talk. 
She sat down opposite him and waited. And then she said, do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he said. I will never forget that moment. Well, I did, she said. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. And that's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone, and since that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got a room, and I'd like to adopt you if you'd let me. And that's how she became the mother of her son's murderer, the mother that he had never had. Can you even imagine? Instead of seeing the boy who killed her son as a monster, she saw him as a person, and not as a fundamentally evil person, but as someone capable of goodness and change. It blows my mind that she wanted to have anything to do with this boy, and that when she did reach out, it wasn't just a check or a card. She ultimately invited him into her world as her own son, this three-year relationship of forgiveness and transformative care, it began in this mother's imagination. An imagination powerful enough to see this boy's potential to grow. An imagination powerful enough to envision herself having the courage to forgive, to be in relationship with the person who murdered her son. The courage to take a risk, a huge risk, and invest in him to dare to open her home to him. And I'm sure this was a process for her. I would have a hard time believing she stood there in that courtroom and said, I'm going to kill you with a fully formed plan to adopt this boy and love him as her own son. But when we have the guts to embark on a transformational journey, on a journey of the soul, it is impossible to predict the connections that our heart will find. We can't know how to repair the world until we first understand how our fates are all tied together, until we see the value in other people's lives and that their pain is as real as our pain. And this happens through imagination and empathy. However, a deep understanding of our inner connection is not a stopping place. This is a starting point. Our part in the repair of the world is going to take a lot of courage. The courage to continually step away from our narcissistic, consumeristic society and make time and space to grow our souls through individual spiritual practice or communal spiritual practice, such as our Sunday morning worship or our circles. Some practice that will sustain and feed our religious imagination and empathy. 
it will take courage to honestly examine systems of racism and oppression and our participation in them. It will take courage to organize and to do what has never been done before, because there has never been a moment in history quite like this one. The road is wide, the rain is falling, and a man carries his son across the street. The world's most sensitive cargo. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with each other. This is what's required of us, to see ourselves in the other, to gather the other in our arms, to gather each other in our arms, and to carry our sisters and brothers with love. This is how imagination repairs the world. May it be so. Amen.